Hi, I'm Peter Tragos, host of the Lawyer You Know podcast and YouTube channel. The saying goes, everyone hates lawyers until you need one. Well, I'm here when you need one to answer your questions and give you insight that you didn't know you needed. Along with my partners, Pete Sardis, the professor, who has a finance and business background, and George Tragos, my dad, and the conciliary, a criminal defense giant, we can answer any questions you have. Hi, everybody. Pete Sardis for The Lore You Know, and today we are talking about Hulu's miniseries, The Dropout, Episode 7, entitled Heroes. But before we do that, I'm obligated to do the spoiler alert. Yes, we're going to be talking about what's true, what's not true, and what is true-ish in Episode 7. But before we do that, I would like to take a couple seconds and just shout out some of our subscribers. Last time, I asked a question about what you think is the reason that the writers at Hulu called episode number six, Iron Sisters, and I do have some responses to that, and I want to share those with you. Uh, Shumi Khan says, I think it was called Iron Sisters because of the ad they created at Theranos with women who work there in science and engineering who are praising Elizabeth for being an inspiration. Love all your Theranos content. Thank you very much, Shumi. I appreciate the props, but I agree with you. That's what I thought the reason for naming this episode Iron Sisters was about. The only thing that I guess caused me some to question that decision is because they didn't really talk about the whole uh, Iron Sisters movement that Elizabeth Holmes obviously was integral in. So that's why I asked a question. So here's what we got from some other folks. Pixelate you. I thought the Iron Sisters might have referred to Rochelle Gibbons and Professor Phyllis Gardner, who were two heroines behind the scenes, and MP. 9721NC. Maybe Iron Sisters refers to Holmes and the female Stanford professor. I believe you're talking about Professor Phyllis Gardner. Um, those are the two strong women and happen to be on opposite sides of the entire story. Also a great idea. So I'm glad that you guys took the time to answer those because you gave me food for thought. Again, I thought the same thing, Shumi, that you did. But after I read those other two comments, I'm like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense, too. So thank you again for answering that stuff. Before we get into the meat of Episode 7, if you like the episode, give me a thumbs up. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe to our channel. And as always, please leave me questions and comments below. All right, let's talk about it. Let's set the stage. Uh, episode 7 is right about end of 2013, 2014, maybe the beginning of 2015. At this point, Theranos as a company is really uh, taken off. And by taken off, you see in the episode where Elizabeth Holmes on the private jet, obviously the entourage of security folks walks around with her everywhere she goes. But the truth is the company has gotten big enough now uh, and public enough now that people are starting to question the validity of the Theranos results coming out of the Edison machine. There, there are a number of physicians and patients that had lodged complaints to Theranos indicating that the results that they had received from their Walgreens Wellness Center checkups were either inconsistent with blood work that they had done somewhere else, meaning second opinion blood work, on commercially available machines, or um, they were complaining that the results uh, made them do things or caused them to make decisions in their healthcare that they would otherwise not have done. We know this is true because there were two witnesses that testified during the Elizabeth Holmes trial. The one was a woman that had uh, a series of miscarriages and was trying to get pregnant. 
And this particular lady testified that she had gone to the Walgreens Wellness Center in order to get a blood test for some uh, enzyme markers that her doctor needed. She said that she went to Walgreens because it was a faster and cheaper test. She got the results. Her doctor calls her in and says, based on these lab results, your pregnancy is probably not viable and actually gave this poor woman the option to terminate the pregnancy. Um, by the grace of God, she did not terminate the pregnancy. She decided to see it through and she winds up giving birth to a healthy baby. Uh, again, kind of a big deal when you're you know, testing for very important blood markers that the results you are giving to your patients are not accurate or just simply wrong. Uh, so at this point, that happened. We also know that there were a number of cancer patients. And for those of you that have any experience with cancer patients, you recognize that cancer patients are pincushion. Those poor people are just prodded and blood samples are really what are taken all the time from these folks. So a lot of cancer patients elected for the Theranos concept because, listen, one drop of blood from a finger stick is a heck of a lot better than tubes and vials of blood on a regular basis. Again, a number of cancer patients and their oncologists had indicated that the markers were all over the place, either uh, requiring additional blood work or, in some cases, decisions were made on people's health care based on those markers, which obviously were wrong and it could have, uh, and I'm sure it did cause havoc in their treatment and they probably made life-changing decisions about whether we should start chemo, stop chemo, whatever the case may be, based on some of these results. So that, all of that is true. Let's talk for a second about the next big marker. Tyler Schultz really is starting to develop in this particular episode. And what we see is we see Tyler Schultz at his grandfather, George Schultz. And a couple of you did catch, I did misspeak last episode and called George Schultz Greg. So thank you for catching that. George Schultz is at his home. And Tyler, his grandson, is there, and he's trying to get a handle on what Tyler has done. Because as we know, Tyler did reach out to John Carreyrou in order to report the findings that he and Erica Chung had identified at Theranos while working in the lab. Uh, while they're at George Schultz's home, Tyler is there. The lawyers for Theranos come in, and what they want is they want him to sign, meaning Tyler to sign, new NDA, non-disclosure agreements. They wanted him to sign some affidavit, basically recanting any information that he had given to any reporters outside sources about anything bad at Theranos. And Tyler Schultz is really torn. And I give the young man credit because what winds up happening is we see the strength of George Schultz, meaning we, we find a man who is famous for being able to broker peace. And this is what he did for both Nixon and for Ronald Reagan. And he takes Tyler Schultz, says, you stay here, leaves him in the living room, grabs the lawyer, well, not literally, but figuratively speaking, takes the lawyer from Theranos, moves her into his office, and is very forceful about it, you know, sit down, and he brokers a deal. He starts mediating, going back and forth between his grandson and what seems like, and again, a, a part of the drama in the miniseries, his wife, who is sitting with Tyler, uh, grandma, and the lawyers for Theranos basically going back and forth trying to broker a peace deal, which I think is has two sides to it. Number one, it is in his nature. This is what the man has done professionally for many, many years, and he's extremely successful at it. Uh, number two, I think he's also trying to protect his grandson because he doesn't want bad things to happen to him. 
Number three, he's also trying to protect his investment, his investment in time and money with Elizabeth Holmes, because he does at this point have a lot of faith in her, trying to make this all just copacetic and go away. I give Tyler Schultz a lot of credit because I think, I don't think, I know, at the end of this meeting, he basically said he wasn't going to sign anything. He couldn't bring himself to, you know, to execute any of these documents. Theranos does sue him. His parents spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney fees defending, you know, this litigation. Uh, but I give the young man credit for, you know, standing by his, uh, you know, standing by his convictions. Now, again, is it easier if you're uh, Tyler Schultz and Greg Schultz, excuse me, George Schultz is your grandfather and your parents have plenty of money and can afford to, um, you know, to pay for attorney's fees to defend you. Yeah, I'm sure it is easier, but ultimately, you know, I think that he could have very easily said, this isn't worth it, sign the paperwork and kind of go on about his business. But so that's what I've got. Lab Director Mark, that's the next topic I'd like to focus on. Mark Dandori uh, winds up in the miniseries episode talking to uh, Carrie on the phone saying, hey man, I'm being followed. I don't know what's going on. You know, he does take some emails from the server at Theranos. Now, I don't know if the server at Theranos pinged security. So as uh, Mark is running out the door, Sonny Balwani is chasing him down the corridor. I don't think that really happened. What we do know is that Mark did in fact take email and documentation. In fact, in reality, a number of lab technicians and lab scientists did the exact same thing. And when asked their representations were, we knew something wasn't right. And we knew at some point someone was going to be coming around and asking questions. There was going to be a reckoning to be had. And they wanted to be sure that they had documentation to prove why they took the steps that they did and why they acted the way they did. And this is very true. So I want to kind of take it one more step. Yes, did Mark Dandori take these records? Yes. Did other people do it? Absolutely. And what we'll find out is, and I hope this is not another spoiler, um, I, we find out that at some point Theranos purges their servers and all of these emails and all of these documents were purported to be lost but for the Theranos employees that had taken this information and downloaded them into their own private you know, hard drives so they could have them uh, for their own purposes in the future. And that's really what the prosecution based a good portion of their case around against Elizabeth Holmes. Speaking of Elizabeth Holmes, let's take a moment and talk about the next big topic in this episode, which is Elizabeth Holmes becomes acquainted with Rupert Murdoch. Now, this is a big deal, and this is one of the things that I find ironic, where truth is stranger than fiction. Rupert Murdoch, for those of you that don't know, is a media mogul. He owns the Wall Street Journal. He owns Fox News. He owns the London Times, amongst other media outlets. So uh, Elizabeth Holmes meets Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch actually invests $125 million into Theranos. Now, kind of about the time that all this John Carreyrou uh, investigation is happening, obviously Elizabeth Holmes and the company generally know what's going on because they're, they're kind of in touch with, with who their employees are and what access to what documents they have to the point where I think we saw Sonny Balwani travels to actually go and confront a number of people that may be providing information to Carreyrou. He threatens them, for lack of a better word. And I know we're in the middle of his trial right now, so I don't want to say 
I don't want to put too much on top of them, but let's just say there's plenty of evidence to indicate that there were a number of threatening, if not intimidating tactics employed by Theranos, by the company generally, by the lawyers, by Sonny Balwani. So what happens? One of the big issues, obviously, is they, meaning Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, does not want John Carreyrou to be able to publish his findings in the Wall Street Journal. So Elizabeth Holmes goes and talks to Rupert Murdoch and basically says, you need to you know, cut this off at the knees so we don't have this issue. To Rupert Murdoch's uh, credit, he tells her that's just not something he can do. He doesn't have the power to do that. What he does do is he gives another reporter an opportunity to do a story for Theranos, and it's a pro-Theranos story. He gives Elizabeth Holmes the opportunity to do an op-ed, which is what she did. She actually went and did a, uh, an article that published prior to the John Carreyrou uh, story, but ultimately John Carreyrou's story does go public, and he does publish it. Interestingly enough, again, one of those ironic moments where truth is that you couldn't write this stuff is better than fiction. At the time that this goes public, meaning John Carreyrou's story, Elizabeth Holmes is at the uh, Harvard Fellows meeting. And what she does is she goes on Mad Money with Jim Cramer and she has this basically response to John Carreyrou's story. And if you actually YouTube this, you can find the actual Mad Money episode. In fact, we'll link it below. So you can click on, you can actually see the real exchange where Jim Cramer opens up the newspaper and he reads a couple of the sections that are concerning to him. And you can see Elizabeth's Holmes reaction. One of the things though that she does is she does a, she provides a quote. And the quote that she says is, First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. And this is something that not only did she say on Mad Money, but she tweeted this, and I think it was in a number of outlets as part of their PR package at some point. The real quote was said by Mahatma Gandhi. And the real quote is, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And the irony is obviously Elizabeth Holmes did not win, Theranos did not win. So I'm not certain if Elizabeth Holmes misquoted Gandhi, uh, kind of a Freudian slip, or if uh, Elizabeth Holmes just screwed up the quote. What do you think about that? Do you think she had read the quote, realized what it said, and changed it? Or do you think she just kind of shortened it up just for purposes of putting it out there in the press because it sounded better? I want your opinions on this. Really, leave me some comments below. Speaking of that, let's talk about that Harvard uh, Board of Fellows issue and how Elizabeth Holmes got on it and, and kind of what she did. So yes, it is true. Elizabeth Holmes was asked by the Dean of Harvard to be on the Board of Fellows uh, for their medical program. And what the Board of Fellows is really designed to do is it brings very prominent people in contact with uh, either people that are students at Harvard or stakeholders, meaning important people. So if someone needs someone, meaning if there is somebody doing some research projects, but they need some help or they think that there's something viable that they require outside assistance, Harvard has a group of very prominent people they can reach out to. Elizabeth Holmes, can you help us? Because this student is trying to work on this project. Our research has gone here. Can you help us? PR. You just go out there and speak highly of Harvard Medical School or medical the medical program. That's really what they're doing. Um, it is an appointed position by the dean. The dean chooses people that doesn't go through any vetting process. You basically have two meetings per year that you 
go and kind of just either are part of some marketing or advertising uh, sort of activities, or you're involved in some sort of networking with either the students or other people that Harvard is courting. So that's really how it works. My understanding is Elizabeth Holmes actually did go to her first meeting, and that's what happened when she had to walk uh, out and do the the, uh, the the Kramer story on Mad Money. She then came in late. Apparently, the the real story is that she wound up having dessert at the uh, the board of fellows meeting, and then after dessert, quickly you know left the, uh, the the meeting. I understand that she may have been part of another meeting, but her tenure on this committee was not more than a year. Ish. And what I mean by that is, I think she may have done two meetings, but at some point, the, the Harvard folks said, there's just too much dirt going on here. We need to distance ourselves from Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. And that's what they did. They basically asked her to resign her position, and she did do that. Sonny Balwani is making some, some moves of his own. And I think one of the biggest things that we see is that Sonny Balwani talks to Elizabeth Holmes before the infamous scene where uh, all the employees of Theranos are in their uh, cafeteria and they start chanting F.U. Carry Room. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But what does, what does excuse me, Sonny Balwani do? He replaces Mark um, Dandori with a new lab director. That person's name was Sunil uh, Dewan, and Sunil Dewan is a doctor, but he is a dermatologist, and many would say, and in fact they did say it uh, during the Elizabeth Holmes trial, is here is a doctor that has absolutely no comprehension about this type of work. He's a dermatologist. He takes care of skin. He doesn't do labs. He doesn't really have a background in academics, but what the argument I believe is going to be in the Sonny Balwani trial is Sonny at this point recognizes that Mark is gone. Obviously, they did in fact have words when Mark took uh, emails and documents from the Theranos server when he abruptly left the company. Um, Sonny changes at this point their lab director because they have no choice, he's left, and he picks someone, I believe, that is an empty suit. And what I mean by that is I have no, I'm not trying to downplay Dr. Uh, Dewan's credentials as a doctor or as a dermatologist, but I think that Sonny Balwani picked someone he knew he could control, who knew just enough to qualify as a medical doctor, even though he's never been a lab director, but at the same time, didn't know enough to be able to make waves like Mark did. So I think that that is Sonny Balwani asserting himself. We will see in our other series that we're following the Sonny Balwani trial if there, uh, there comes a point in time where either of these lab directors are going to testify against him. We know that this topic came out during the Elizabeth Holmes trial, and of course Elizabeth Holmes blamed Sonny Balwani, which seems to be consistent with what we are seeing in episode 7. With that, let's end on the note regarding the infamous moment where this is in fact true. Apparently, Elizabeth Holmes brought everybody into the uh, cafeteria, and they had this big PR, you know, rah-rah chant session, and it becomes F.U., and they use the real world. And just for our purposes, take it with a grain of salt. I'm not going to be profane on camera. F.U. Carew is the chant that breaks out in the cafeteria amongst the employees. Uh, this is something that was testified to in the trial, 
There were discussions about this. It did make some public headlines because, you know, this is really not the normal way a corporation functions. You know, Sonny Balwani getting up there and starting a chant in profanity is not normally something you would expect to see in corporate America, but that's exactly what they did. It did in fact occur, it has been corroborated. So that is where this particular episode ends. Let's see what happens in the next episode. And speaking of that, let me ask one more question of you. What do you guys think? Do you like the miniseries? I think it's great. I think uh, the information is being uh, imparted extremely accurately. I think uh, Amanda Seyfried is doing a spectacular job portraying Elizabeth Holmes. And I think that they're probably going to do a series two, or sorry, not a series two, a season two on this, because I'm not sure where this all ends, but my gut says it probably went, went into filming before the trial for Elizabeth Holmes was over. Obviously, I'm guessing that it is uh, going to engage us not only during the trial. I think they're going to keep this thing going until after sentencing. They may even cover Sonny Balwani because I think they're getting a lot of mileage out of this miniseries. But what do you guys think? Do you think they'll just kind of end it uh, at some specific, you know, historical moment? If you think that there is a historical moment you have in mind, let me know what that is. Let's kind of figure out how many more episodes you think we have of this particular miniseries. But with that, again, as always, if you've enjoyed the episode, give me a thumbs up. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe. And as always, questions, comments, if you got them, leave them below. Thank you very much for joining me and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for watching this episode of The Lawyer You Know. If you like this content, please share it with your friends. Make sure you subscribe to our page and like our videos. If you want some interaction, get in the comments and we'll be sure to get back to you. If you want to know any more information about our firm or this page, you can find out in the description or visit tragoslaw.com. We post multiple times throughout the week, so make sure you hit that bell so you can get the notification and not miss out on the next episode.